0: The the topic of sin has gone out of style, though the practice of sin seems to be flourishing. In preparation for Easter this year, we will have a short sermon series on Psalm 51, a psalm that deals with sin, deals with it thoroughly, honestly, honestly. And at times, painfully. Why is the topic or issue of sin so rarely talked about these days? Why does it seem old-fashioned, of a different era? Well, isn't it because we have progressed so far as a society? That's really humorous, right? (laughs) Well, what's happening now, we as a a people hold up tolerance and freedom and acceptance as the higher good. Calling sin, sin is so judgmental. It is so bigoted. It is so outdated. I must say that mankind has always been adverse to submitting to a higher being who has the authority and the right to set a moral code. We, as a people, have always balked against moral absolutes. That's nothing new, but it seems like today that's gone even to a higher place. Today, no rules, no right and wrong, no guilt, no judgment. These are the newest and best flavor of the month, flavor of a generation. Wouldn't it be said that these things are the new religion of this day? Today, even in some church circles, there's a conspiracy of silence about sin and man's responsibility for sin. Sin is to be ignored or minimized. Sin has been downgraded to mere mistakes. Sin now has become a matter of personal choice. Sin, for most, in the most part, is is simply excused. And the notion of needing a crucified Savior for many is absurd. I've entitled this series, Pursuing Great Thoughts of God. And you may think that seems odd if this series is going to be about sin. But I agree with John Owen, who was a pastor and writer in the the, uh, 1600s, when he wrote this, and it will be on the screen. He that has slight thought of sin never had great thoughts of God. During these weeks, we will use Psalm 51 to show us our sin, to call us to a lifestyle of repentance, and to show us our merciful and righteous and just and gracious God. As we study Psalm 51, as we work our way through this incredible psalm, may every week, week after week, may it initiate, may it prompt great thoughts of God and his forgiveness and his mercy and his grace. Will you join us this week, these weeks? I invite you to, I invite you to join us and I, I... and fight honesty and humility and brokenness as we come to the word of God, particularly Psalm 51. Before we look at the setting of Psalm 51, I started 2017 by reading a biography of Hudson Taylor he was uh, the pioneering uh, missionary to China. He lived from 1832 to 1905. And after he had learned the language and had donned the local dress and he would bend a number of visits to China, on one of his visits he was making his way inland inland. And uh, a man from Taiping came to him, and he had been, they had been in the city, and, and Hudson Taylor was just moved by the number of people that were just packing to hear him speak. And a man named Daying came up to him and said these words. But the question which distresses me. To which I can find no answer is, what am I to do with my sins? Our scholars tell us that there is no future state, but I find it hard to believe them. Oh, sir, I lie on my bed and think. I sit alone in the daytime and think. I think and think and think again, but I cannot tell what is to be done about my sins. I am 72 years of age. I cannot expect to finish another decade. Today knows not tomorrow's lot. As the saying is, can you tell me what to do with my sin? And Hudson Taylor's reply, I can indeed. It is to, this, to answer this very question that we have come many thousands of miles. Listen, and I will explain to you what you want and need to know. And he told this man about Jesus, the sin bearer, the crucified Savior. Here is a man in the middle of China. What am I to do with my sin? And this man believed. And as a result of coming to know this, the next conversation that he had with Hudson Taylor, and this is what motivated Hudson Taylor the man said, How long have you had the good tidings in your country? And Hudson Taylor had to reply reluctantly, Some hundreds of years. What? Hundreds of years? My father sought the truth, he continued sadly, and died without finding it. Oh, why did you not come sooner? What do I do with my sin? Does that seem like a question of a previous era? Does that seem like the question of someone from a different culture? Is it in your mind, is it in my mind that people don't ask those questions anymore? A question on an internet blog dated 2017. This question was asked, what do I do with my sin? I always try to run away from sin. And when I think I've gotten away, it comes back. After I commit the sin, I feel as if I should be punished for my sin. Other times I feel so bad that I think that God is disappointed and I'm too embarrassed to tell anyone of my sin. What do I do? These questions are still being asked. What do we do with our sin? Would you please open your Bibles to Psalm 51? I'll be reading out of the ESV, and my Bible has a, an introduction to the, the book of Psalm 51, the chapter of Psalm 51. It says this, to the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. We don't get the context of all of the psalms this way, but this psalm we do have the context. Let me speak to the context before we look at verses 1 and 2. One day the prophet Nathan came and told King David a story. And the story was this. There were two men, one very rich and one very poor. The rich man had a lot of everything. And in his flocks he had many lambs. The poor man had nearly nothing. In his flocks, he had one lamb. It was a lamb that had grown up with his children. It was a lamb that had eaten in his very home. It was a treasured lamb. Well, the story goes that Nathan was telling King David, a traveler visited the rich man. And to entertain this traveler, the rich man wanted to feed him lamb. And so what he did is he didn't go to his flocks. He went to the poor man's flock of one lamb and took that lamb and slaughtered it and fed it to his visitor. And when David heard this story, David was enraged. It said the Bible says he had great anger at the man. And he said this, And, the, and, the, and as the Lord lives... The man who did this deserves to die. He must restore to the poor man four times because he had no pity. And there was a pause. And Nathan the prophet looked at David and said, David, you are that man. Because what had happened, David had done something even far worse. David had done something with a woman named Bathsheba. David was the man because of his sin with Bathsheba. It's recorded for us in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. And the story is this. David had finally made the long climb to the top. He was now king of Israel. He was powerful. He had everything. He had maxed out his career. He had maxed out his abilities. He had made it to the very top. And the Bible says it was the time of the year when kings and soldiers went off to war, but David didn't this year. David stayed home. And while he was home, one night he was looking out of his palace balcony and he saw noticed a beautiful woman bathing, and that was Bathsheba. And David, King David, calls for her and takes her. Has a one-night stand with this woman. And he does it in a hidden way. But then all goes wrong, because it was wrong. For Bathsheba was married to one of his soldiers, Uriah, who was out doing battle. And from this night with David, Bathsheba becomes pregnant. And so now what do they do? Well, they need to cover this up. And so their first plan is this. David recalls Uriah from the battle, and for some reason he has discussions with him in the palace, and then he says to Uriah, go home to your wife. He's assuming he will go home, and they will be together, and he will be known as the father of this baby. But Uriah is a noble man. He doesn't go to his home. And when asked why not, he says, well, my fellow soldiers are out in the battle. Can I take comfort at home? And so he doesn't go home. Instead, he sleeps at the door of the king. He does that one night. He does that multiple nights. Their first plan to cover this up fails. And so Uriah goes back to the battlefield, and David comes up with a second plan. And this plan was that David would have... um, uh, His commander set Uriah right at the front of the battle. And at a certain moment in the battle, his commander would have the rest of the troops withdraw, leaving Uriah to fight by himself and be killed. And that's exactly what happens. And the plan works. And Bathsheba mourns. And after the allotted time, David marries her. And the baby is born And the scriptures say, But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. And sin can't be sealed or hidden away. Sin can't be covered up by simply pressing a delete button, the delete button of forgetfulness or of of ignoring it or of, of looking the other way or not thinking about it. And God reveals all of this to Nathan And that prompts Nathan to go and talk to David and tell the story of the rich man and the poor man and to say, David, you are the man. And there's a moment. What will David do? His sin has just been revealed. What will he do about his sin? And as we look at Psalm 51... What do we do about our sin? We will find our way. We will track through this entire psalm in the weeks to come. We will see David at his darkest moments. We will explore the depths of his guilt and also the far reaches of God's mercy and forgiveness. And we will find ourselves in Psalm 51. Today we will look at verses one and two very quickly. Where to start when we sin? And I speak to all of us today in this room. I speak to all the sinners in the room. I speak to each and every one of us. There may be some in the room today who have never come to God, never come to Jesus in the first, for the first time. Jesus, the sin bearer, which we are going to consider later in the service, particularly when we come to communion. But Jesus, the sin bearer. There may be some in the room that have never accepted Christ and never stepped into this life of forgiveness by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. I speak to you today. But I also speak to all the rest who maybe already know Jesus and are living in this grace, and yet still are confronted with your sin, and that sin that shows up all the time. I speak to the sinners in the room today. I speak to us all. Where do we start when we sin? From, verses, from verse 1, where we read it earlier, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. First of all, number one, we need to acknowledge that forgiveness is found in God alone. Here this is, David is confronted with his sin. What does he do? His cry is, have mercy on me, O God. What does David do here? He turns to God. He doesn't turn away from Him. He's not seeking to hide any longer. And hiding is our natural response, correct? We saw David trying to cover it up. It is what we all do. We like to cover it up. We like to hide away. We'd rather not face God at these moments. That's the Adam and Eve response in the garden where they go and hide themselves. What does David do? He cries out, have mercy on me, O God. He turns to God. He steps toward God, and he cries out to God for mercy. There's only one you can turn to, to find forgiveness. That stain of sin can only be removed by God. So like David, we turn to him. Oh, there are many today, in fact there have always been many, who can promise to enhance our lives. Who can promise to make life easier and better? Who can improve our lives? They make promises that make us better spouses, better employees, make us richer, healthier, stronger, more beautiful. But there is only one we can go to to remove our sin. So that's why David when this all unfolds and it all becomes clear, and there it is, David cries out to God, have mercy on me. Oh, we look at David. David doesn't, uh, there's no excuses here of David. Oh, well, boys will be boys, kings will be kings. There's none of that. There's no... Deserving, hey, hey God, you know, I'm I'm king. Do you remember the, the Goliath story? Can you give me a pass on this one? There's no blaming. Well, well, she she was out there. I fell in love all in a moment. It was a moment of madness. There's no human promising here. Oh, oh God, I'll, I'll never do that again. I, I promise. No, no. He turns to God and he pleads for mercy. David, and I must turn to God. He alone can forgive. You know, I believe this seeking forgiveness from God is universally known. Even though there are many who would deny it, postmoderns would rage against that. Anthropologists, sociologists would reason against that. But deep inside, we know it is God we are accountable to. It is to him we must turn. David knew that. Have mercy on me, O God. He goes on, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. These are, these are important phrases. These are covenant Words They come out of Exodus. When uh, Moses said the Ten Commandments, and then he threw them, and then he was given another set of the Ten Commandments, and during that time, God reveals his name to Moses. In Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, it says this, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding, When David says, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, he is going back to those covenant words of what they know and God has revealed about himself. And today in this place, we know even more about who God is. In just a few moments, we're going to partake of communion and we're going to prepare ourselves for for communion. And communion speaks of the crucified Savior the one who bore our sin, the one who came out of the mercy and grace of God to forgive us. So today, fellow sinner, when we sin, turn to God. Turn to God for the forgiveness of sins that leads to salvation. Also turn to God every day. Christian, as we struggle with the sin that is before us, if you want to call it that besetting sin, whatever it might be for you, that sin that just daily seems to haunt us, we turn to God. It may be the last place we want to go, but we turn to God. It may be the place where we're just embarrassed to go because this is the hundredth time And we turn to God. And we find his mercy. We're pursuing great thoughts of God. From this first few phrases of verse 1, we learn of God's long-suffering. We learn of God's mercy. We see that he is full of steadfast love and abundant mercy. Have you turned to him? Are you turning to him? Yes, there may be some in this room who have never turned to God and accepted the forgiveness that comes through Jesus Christ. You would consider yourself a non Christian. You don't believe in him, you haven't accepted Jesus. Will you turn to him today? There's no place else to turn. And our God is a merciful God. He has provided the means of salvation. Will you turn, cry for mercy, repent of your sin, and accept Christ? And for those of us who have known Christ maybe for years, and we still struggle with those, and for the millionth time, I have to turn to Him again. Turn to Him. Find His mercy. And the power that he alone can can give. Not to be saved again. No, it isn't like that. But to be restored. To worship. Secondly, from the end of verse 1 and verse 2. Let me read these. David Christ blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. And cleanse me from my sin. Secondly, acknowledge what sin truly is. In these phrases here, we find three terms. We find the term transgressions. We find the term iniquity. We find the term sin. Folks, we dare not minimize our sin. If we're going to have great thoughts of God, we need to see who we are in and of ourselves, and then we begin to see the power of the gospel to forgive and to transform us and save us. These three terms, the first one is transgressions. In the Hebrew, this word conveys not just breaking a moral or written code, but more a a defiance against a lawful authority. It's defiance. It's God says, well, here's the way. Walk in it. It is good. It is right. It is what's best for you. And we refuse. And we defy him. And we transgress. We need to see this for what it is. Oh, Christian, that burst of anger, that spirit of prejudice, that uh, selfish living, that, that impure thought or action, these things aren't just mistakes. These are acts of defiance. These are us saying, God, I know what you say, but I don't accept it. I defy you, and I go my way. This word iniquity. In the Hebrew, it means waywardness. The word suggests a deliberate choice to follow the wrong way. It's not accidentally getting lost. It is choosing to go astray. Jeremiah 3.21 says, They have chosen the wrong road and have forgotten their God. One of the translations says, They have perverted their way. And have forgotten their God. Stop looking at sin as accidental. And the last word here is sin. It is the It has the meaning of failure. This idea of missing the mark. This is tied in with the New Testament word for sin. Particularly in Romans 3.23 where it says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So sinning is falling short. It is God created us for this and we fall short. Dear people, do not make light of your sin. We dare not. And I stand before you as one of the sinners in the room. And we sin so often. We sin so daily. We sin so regularly. Oh, well, it's no big deal. Je- Jesus died to cover all of that, and He did. When will we see sin for what it is? When in in the Scriptures do we see sin for what it is? In the Garden of Eden? Here they were walking with God. Just don't eat that one from the tree, that one tree. And they do. And they're expelled. (coughs) And they they fall. And there's such great loss. Maybe we begin to see what sin really does. Or do we see it with David and Bathsheba and this awful story and the effects and the effects are far ranging of what takes place in David's life and the, uh, the effects of sin? We, we see it maybe. Do we see it with Judas when Judas betrays Jesus with a kiss for 40 pieces of silver? Do we see, do we really see and understand sin when we look at Peter and Peter denying Jesus three times? Do we see sin and we get it when we look at Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts where they lied to the Spirit about something and the Spirit of God strikes them dead? Do we really see sin for what it is? I don't think we do. But I do think we can begin to see sin for what it really is. We can begin to see sin for all of its sinfulness when we look at the cross. When we look at what Jesus did. When the perfect Son of God had to die because of our ugliness, our sinfulness, our rebelliousness, because of our sin. That's when we begin to see the sinfulness of our sin when we consider the crucified Savior. I think it is most appropriate that we partake of communion today. You know, For David, what did David know? David knew about the name of God. David knew about those covenant phrases that this is who God is. We know so much more today as revelation progressed and now Jesus has come and Jesus has given his life for us, how Jesus has done for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. When Jesus, the perfect son of God, died so that our sins might be forgiven. Folks, this is what we remember at communion. Communion. I'm going to ask those who are going to serve communion if you would gather down here. Um, I invite you to partake with us of communion. You don't need to be a member of Westchester. Do you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior? Are you walking in fellowship with Him? Would you partake with us? I think it's also very interesting and exciting that in our adult Bible fellowship classes, we studied 1 Corinthians 11 today. And we considered that passage of Scripture that we look at every time we partake of communion and the significance of communion in the context of worship. That we can gather like this and remember the crucified one, the one who died in our place. These words... until he comes. You know, we've talked about ordinances. This was instituted by Jesus in the upper room. This was taught by the apostles and practiced in the early church. There have been believers doing this since then. And that's what we will do this morning. Would you remember with us? And I think it is so appropriate when we come to communion... It's one of those moments in life when we mourn and rejoice at the same moment. When we come and remember, we mourn because it was our sin to put Jesus on the cross. Our rebelliousness, our transgressions. And we mourn how lightly we take our sin for the great price that it demanded. And then also, when we gather around the communion cups and the bread and we partake, we also rejoice because in what Jesus did, there's forgiveness of sins. In what Jesus did, here is the merciful God extending forgiveness to us. And so we partake and we rejoice because we can be forgiven and saved. And adopted into his family because of what Jesus did. Oh, Heavenly Father, thank you for your mercy and your grace. Lord, I pray that as we partake of communion now, we would mourn and we would rejoice. Oh, thank you, God, for your grace. We remember in Christ's name. Amen. The elements will be distributed. Please hold on to them, and we will partake together. Jesus died in our place, and we remember. First, the bread. Jesus said, "Do this as oft as you eat it, in remembrance of me." And then the cup. Do this as oft as you drink it, in remembrance of me." Oh Jesus, we remember. Thank you. Scriptures say, for as oft as you eat this bread and drink the the cup, you do proclaim the Lord's death. We've done that today. And the church will be doing that until he comes. Thank you. Let's stand together. We'll sing.